Martin Luther King Jr. Day in Charleston, West Virginia. The city famous for its gold roof capitol building and famous for pretty much nothing else decided to be seven degrees on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And this would have no relevance to me if this wasn't the day when I first met the girl who would become my wife. Like how most true romances begin, Kate and I first met in a dimly lit parking garage. In fact, Kate and I aren't shy to admit that we actually first met online. Uh, we immediately hit it off. We talked for hours together. But this January day was the first day we met face to face. Well, from the dimly lit parking garage, we braced the frigid temperature to eat overpriced and understuffed tacos. Uh, millennials love those things. Uh, to keep the thrills going, though, we decided to peruse a bookstore. Now, coffee always makes things better, at least so they say, so we got lattes, and Kate trusted my judgment that the coffee wasn't that hot, and so she took a sip and proceeded to burn her mouth. <laughs> Next, there's thrills going still. Uh, what do you do when you want to thrill? Well, you go bowling. Uh, so Kate and I went to a rundown bowling alley uh, where I beat her handily. And along the way, uh, we got lost in Charleston's many winding back streets. And I decided to try to make up for it by impressing Kate. And I would embarrassingly rap every lyric to the song Grills by Nelly. Uh, this is from my less sanctified days. Um, so... Day is just going great now, and I decided, what's, what's something fun that people like to do? Well, I, I am white, and I am from the suburbs, so I thought going to a farmer's market could be fun. Um, but I didn't really think it through, because in January, there's not much fresh produce at a farmer's market, so, but we still went. And so after we spent a, an hour or so there, I tried to keep things alive, and as Kate came out of the bathroom, I decided to scare her. Uh, and so she jumped about a mile high and spilled coffee all over herself. Um, after an awkward walk around an empty mall, uh, Kate and I sat down to dinner, and I gave her the gift that's sure to reach any girl's heart. Uh, did I give Kate flowers? No. Uh, you may be wondering, did I give Kate chocolates? No, I didn't give her that either. You know what I gave Kate? I gave Kate a variety pack of post-it notes. Uh, it's not just random. It's not just what I, something I had in my car. I knew that Kate used them all the time. Uh, and I thought that the gift of post-it notes was a natural segue to talk about our future together. Uh, hence, it was not a natural segue. Um, I warned her that it could be tough being the wife of a pastor. After all, you can get talked about in sermon introductions. So, <laughs> Kate stuck with me through each foible and each blunder. And that's when I think I knew I wanted to stick with her for the rest of my life. Today's passage from scripture isn't about the beginning of a romance, but... It does tell us the story of men who spend time with a person and decide they want to stay with him forever. These men went and saw what Jesus is really like, and they were compelled to stay. And as they stayed with Jesus, Jesus changed them. And as they followed Jesus, he showed them that he is greater than they ever expected. If you're not there yet, turn with me to John chapter 1. Today we are in verses 35 to 51, and you can see the page number of the Bible that it's uh, 
Uh, it's in, and if you're looking at the Bible in the chair in front of you, really encourage you to turn there today. Um, so we'll be just kind of walking through it, and it'll help for you to follow along. John chapter 1, starting at verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. We can fit this into what John has wrote so far, and if we do that, we can see that the main thing John communicates in this section is that more people besides John the Baptist start to recognize who Jesus really is. And they recognize this as Jesus is drawing more followers to himself. In other words, if we fit this into what John is writing, John is continuing to build his case that he's going to work toward all the way by the end of his book You see, at chapter 20, verse 31, near the end of the Gospel of John, John writes why he wrote what he wrote. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He sticks that thesis statement, that purpose statement, at the end of his book. And this is just another notch in that case. Now, we'll go through this section, and we see that there are two very similar accounts in this section. And we'll go through both of these of men recognizing who Jesus really is. And as we go through these accounts, we'll see how the, the story of these men can be our story as, as well. So first, let's start with the account about Andrew and Peter. Now, if you reread this paragraph, the first paragraph in the section we're in today, uh, I bet if you reread it, you can spot something of a progression building upon one another. Maybe we can distill it to three stages of a progression. We can see that the disciples hear about Jesus, then they inquire to learn more about Jesus, and finally they're convinced of Jesus. We can see that progression as we go through, and just notice the first stage. First, they hear about Jesus. The first stage begins with John the Baptist preaching again, and we're told at the very beginning of verse 35 that this is the next day. 
Now, the Apostle John, the author of this book, has described two days for us so far. The first day was verses 19 to 28. On that first day, John the Baptist clarifies who he is and he clarifies what he does. The second day comes in verses 29 to 34. On that day, John the Baptist clarifies the person he's pointing people to, Jesus. Here we arrive at the third day, and John the Baptist preaches really the same message he's preached the day before. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. Now we can dig into this just a little bit deeper, and it says that John says this as Jesus walks by him. And we don't see anything of Jesus' movement, any details of that. We don't read any details about Jesus' motives, what he was up to in walking by John. But even from what we'll see of Jesus in the next scene with Philip and Nathaniel, we wouldn't be crazy to think that Jesus knew what he was doing here. I don't think we'd be crazy to say that Jesus orchestrates this scene. I don't think we'd be crazy to say that Jesus knew who would be around John the Baptist that day. I don't think it'd be crazy for us to say that Jesus would use John the Baptist's preaching to reach his first two disciples. So Jesus is orchestrating what's going on here. And let's just stay in the deep end for a moment. Think about the two disciples who are with John the Baptist who hear him preach. Now think about the day before. It seems like they were with John the Baptist the day before. It seems like the day before they heard the exact same message they're hearing now. And yet, this day, they respond. They hear the exact same thing, but the first day, nothing, and the second day, they decide to follow Jesus. What's up with this? I think we know this. I think we've experienced this. Sometimes people need to hear a truth multiple times for it to sink in, for it to do anything to them. And if you're a Christian, think about your own story. I mean, did you believe in Jesus the first time you heard about Jesus? Most of us, the answer is probably no. Probably for a lot of us, the first time we heard about Jesus, we wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Or at the very least, kind of shrugged our shoulders and said, what's the point? And here is John the Baptist. It's not that he preaches a complicated message, right? I mean, he's essentially saying Jesus is the ultimate and final sacrifice for our sin who will bring us peace with God. That is what it means. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's not a complicated message. But it seems like even for this simple message, people need to hear it multiple times before they believe it. Now, don't walk away from this hearing me say, this is a license for us to pester and bother people and give them the gospel enough times before they, until they actually believe it and say, you wore me down. Oh, I don't think that's the takeaway. I think a takeaway can be, though, an encouragement. An encouragement to persist, an encouragement to pray, an encouragement to maintain hope. Christian, you could think about your story. I bet there are a few of us here who had somebody who wouldn't give up on us. Who had somebody who we thought might have been really annoying at the time, but who wouldn't give up on us, who wouldn't stop praying for us, who wouldn't stop even sharing the gospel with us when we didn't want to hear it. What we're saying here from John's ministry is be that person for someone else. Someone was that for you. Be that person for someone else. I mean, even parents, be that person for your kids. 
Don't just point them to Jesus one time and be discouraged when they don't, uh, when they don't respond. Continue to point them to Jesus. You see, John the Baptist, he preached a message, he didn't get any results, but that didn't leave him to wonder, is the message true? The results didn't dictate how, if the message was true or not. It was true or it wasn't. So maybe you have an experience like John the Baptist. You finally muster the boldness to share what you believe, and when people hear it, it falls flat. You don't get any response. Well, friend, don't let that keep you from saying the same message again. So you never know, it might get a response the next time, just like John the Baptist. So they hear about Jesus. This is the first stage of this progression we see. The second stage is they inquire about Jesus. They want to learn more about him. So Andrew and another one of John the Baptist's disciples, it says, they start to follow Jesus. I mean, literally start to follow him around. And this other disciple is likely John, the guy who wrote this book. So you see, John doesn't like to mention himself by name. So Andrew and John literally followed Jesus around, and if somebody followed you around, pretty soon you would find out and see what they were up to. And that's what Jesus does here. He turns to them in verse 38, and he asks them plainly, what are you seeking? Or another way to put it, what do you want? <laughs> it might seem like a shallow question, but it actually can be a really deep question if we think about it. Jesus loves asking questions. And he probably knew the answer to this one, right? I mean, he's Jesus after all. But he wants to draw out Andrew and John. He wants them to say what they're thinking. He wants them to articulate what's on their hearts. And so he asks them, what are you seeking? I think that's really instructive for us. If Jesus loves questions, I think we should be better at asking people good questions. I think when we talk about Jesus, especially with those who don't know Jesus, we should normally start with questions about that person, get to know them, before we start with answers about Jesus. Start with questions before you start with answers. So, I mean, back to this question, what are you seeking? Andrew and John is going to have to wrestle with this, just like each one of us. I think what Jesus is getting after is, you know, they have their interest peaked in Jesus, right, Andrew and John, but Jesus wants them to wrestle with why. Why are you interested in me? Andrew and John, are you guys interested in me just because you think I'm going to solve all your earthly problems? Because you think I'm going to make you wealthy, healthy, and wise? Andrew and John, are you guys interested in me because you think you can ride my coattails to prestige and to power? What are you seeking, Andrew and John? Why are you interested in me? Are you interested in me or just the stuff that I can give you? We don't really get an answer. For now... Andrew and John simply want to know Jesus more. They ask him, can we come see where you're staying? They're comfortable enough with Jesus to ask him that. And Jesus accepts. And Andrew and John and Jesus talk from what would be about 4 p.m. until late into the night. And what a conversation that must have been. I mean, we don't know. All we're told is that Jesus gives Andrew and John a simple and kind invitation. He tells them, Guys, come and you will see. Come and you will see. For one, this tells us that Jesus does not fear close examination. He welcomes it. And another thing, too, for us, I think it tells us that whatever you think about Jesus, we want to welcome you here. Whatever you think about Jesus, if you're still not sure about what you think about Jesus, if you're still not sure whether or not you should care about Jesus, really, thank you for being here. Seriously. And by coming here, I hope you take the invitation that Jesus gives 
Come and see. Come and see who Jesus really is. And it's our prayer that by being here, you can see how unique and how amazing Jesus is. Just by being among a group of people who follow him. You know, it's one reason why we preach the Bible. Because we want to see what, we want people to see what Jesus is really like. That's why we preach the Bible. This book is all about Jesus. This book centers on Jesus. This book is written by eyewitnesses of Jesus. If we want to see, if we want people to see what Jesus is really like, then we shouldn't preach cultural hot takes. We shouldn't preach TED Talk self-help. We should preach the Bible. That's our goal. If we want to, but it's more than just our preaching though. Because Jesus is later going to say in John 13, 35, that people will know that we are his followers. How? By our love for one another. So we say, if, if you're here, you, you don't really know what you think about Jesus. We hope it's our prayer that you can see what Jesus is really like, not just in what we preach, but also in how we live and how we love. And just to piggyback off of, off of that, if if our goal here is to show what Jesus is really like, it makes me think. It makes me think of some people who say, maybe well-intentioned, that inviting somebody, inviting somebody to church is just a cop-out for telling them about Jesus. It's just a cop-out. It's lazy. Now, maybe we could deal with more of that in a couple minutes. But if our goal is for people to see who Jesus really is, then what better place can they be? What better place can they be than among a group of people who know Jesus, who follow Jesus, who want to know Jesus better from the word? What better place can they be? You can invite people to church and not feel bad about it. All right, so the progression so far. They've heard about Jesus. John the Baptist continued to preach. They inquire of Jesus. They go talk to him a little bit more, see what he's really like. And then the third stage we see they are convinced of Jesus. We've moved on to verse 40 here. After a night of conversation, Andrew was convinced about who Jesus really is. He's so convinced that he tells his brother Simon that he has found the Messiah. Now just to press pause for a minute on that title, Messiah, and explain what it means. It came up last week when John the Baptist says that he was not the Christ. Here the Apostle John mentions the title Messiah, which is a Jewish word meaning anointed one. John explains in parentheses, you see that uh, for his non-Jewish readers, that the Greek word for Messiah is Christ or Christos. So when the Old Testament background of this, to anoint someone with oil was to set them apart for God. And you had several, several different kinds of figures who were anointed. For example, in Exodus 29, Aaron, the high priest, was anointed with oil. 1 Samuel 16, David, the king, was anointed with oil. 1 Kings 19, Elisha, the prophet, was anointed with oil. What's Jesus called here? He's called the anointed one, the Messiah par excellence. And as we're going to keep reading in John, we'll see how Jesus is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, the Messiah. Press play again. Jesus convinces Andrew that he truly is the Messiah. And what does Andrew do next? He does not go to Disney World. Verse 41. It says he first found his own brother Simon. That's the first thing he did. Went and told his brother. 
My friends, you know you're convinced about who Jesus is when you want to tell other people about who Jesus is. To be convinced of Jesus is to be convinced that he's not just good and true for you, but that he's good and true for anybody. To be convinced of Jesus is to say, he is so good that I want others to get in on this. That's how sharing our good experiences work in general, isn't it? We, we share good things all the time. An example, a couple weeks ago, Kate and I went to Maya Mexican Restaurant in Berea. It's delicious. We had gooey, cheesy quesadillas. We had creamy, a little bit spicy enchiladas. I don't remember if she got enchiladas. is what she normally gets. Their chips are fresh, crisp. Salsa is perfectly tangy, not too spicy. We have great experiences at Maya. You should go get in on this Mexican food. It's delicious. You won't regret it. I mean, the same principle is working on here, working here, right? I, I mean, I understand that talking about Jesus is a little bit different than talking about Mexican food, uh, but I mean, it involves deeper, more personal conversation. But you're allowed to be upfront about that. Say, hey, I know this is deep. I know this might be personal. It's not my intention to offend you, but this is the foundation of my life. And I think this story might be able to help us with why we don't feel compelled to talk about Jesus, like Andrew told his brother. Maybe we don't speak to others about Jesus because we don't spend time to enjoy Jesus. Let's go back to the restaurant analogy. Let's say I went to Maya, but I only ate one bite of my food. Would I be very compelled to share that experience with someone? Probably not. You know, a couple years ago, maybe more than that, somebody got me a, a two-minute-a-day devotional. I think there could be well-intended behind that. But let's say that's all you do. Two minutes a day. You know how easily you can forget two minutes? So here, what happens? Andrew told his brother about Jesus after he spent time with Jesus. Talked to him for hours. Then the same is going to work for us. We will feel compelled to share about Jesus only after we spend meaningful time with Jesus. And notice that I was careful in saying that. Meaningful time. Not just time. Meaningful time. You spend time with Jesus through reading his word meaningfully. By responding to reading his word in prayer and by gathering with his people meaningfully. Leaning into it. Engaging. That's when we'll feel compelled to share Jesus. So, back to the story. Simon goes to see Jesus for himself. And you see here, Simon didn't do this because he saw a miracle. Simon didn't go to see Jesus because he saw some great display. You know what? Simon went to Jesus because he heard from his brother. He must trust his brother. He wants to hear him out, what he has to say. Now, so earlier we said, right, just a couple minutes ago, we said that it's not a cop-out to invite somebody to church. But, but just consider this. Consider this quote from an old English pastor, J.C. Ryle. He says, thousands, humanly speaking, would listen to a word from a friend who will not listen to a word from a sermon. The church, as, as great as something like programs can be to reach people, the church does not need more great programs to reach people. The church needs people to reach people. 
We have to start actually engaging and being friends. I mean, you have friends, I'm sure, who would never step foot in the church, but might listen to you. Do you have those friendships? Do you have friendships with people who don't yet know or trust in Jesus? And it's not that you treat those people like projects, but can you work toward bringing those friends to Jesus? I mean, you never know. You might just share the gospel with the next Peter. So Simon comes to Jesus, and what happens? Jesus changes his name. That's unusual. I bet that's never happened to you. He goes from Simon to Cephas, which is a name in Aramaic. Again, John gives the Greek translation. Uh, the, the translation is Peter. Both names mean stone or rock. So what's going on here? There's no indication that Simon had ever met Jesus before, and yet Jesus knows that Simon needs to change. Jesus will make him into somebody new. Jesus will take a common, cursing fisherman and turn him into a pillar of his church. So what we see this progression here, we see that those who come to Jesus are convinced of Jesus and follow Jesus and are then changed by Jesus. I think John's driving home. He says, guys, their story can be your story as well. But just in case we don't believe him yet, John gives two more examples. This time, it's from Philip and Nathaniel. The account of Andrew and Peter and the account of Philip and Nathaniel are a little bit like fraternal twins. Plenty of similarities, but there are also some differences. So we see at the beginning of this next account, Jesus is on the move. He's on the move the day after he meets John, Andrew, and Peter. He's heading to the region of Galilee. Now, this Galilee was like home base for Jesus. If you're looking at an ESV Bible, the one that we have in the chair, or pretty much any Bible, you should be able to find a map of Israel in the back of it, specifically a map of Israel during the time of Jesus. Uh, You might already be looking at it if you're bored during the sermon. That's what I used to do growing up. Um, So if you're looking at the map, Galilee is in north, kind of the northeast part of Israel. Uh, And it's more like a lake. It's pretty small. And so the Jordan River runs down to Galilee and then out of Galilee also. Uh, Jesus was above Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, but to the east of it on the Jordan. And if he's going west, one of the first towns he would have saw right as he crossed over the Jordan would have been this town of Bethsaida. And so this is where he goes and finds Philip. He, Jesus goes to Bethsaida and summons a new person to become his disciple. And disciple just means student or follower. He tells Philip, follow me. Don't really get any details other than that. Don't get details about Jesus' interaction, what they say, what they talk about. Just like kind of, we get more details when he talks to Andrew and John. But we see that the result is the same as Jesus talks to Andrew and John. Philip hears about Jesus, and Philip is convinced of who Jesus truly is. It's a big similarity between both accounts, but there are some differences. One of those differences, you notice how Philip also goes on to tell somebody else. He tells Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses and also the prophets wrote. We have found him. Don't want to rain on Philip's parade. This is, the high, this is a high point of Philip, Philip's life, perhaps the high points of Philip's life. But I think we can quibble with what Philip says just a little bit. We could say, Phil, hey, we're really happy for you. With all due respect, I mean, you are an apostle and all. Uh, wouldn't it be more accurate to say that Jesus found you? 
Not that you found Jesus. I mean, after all, how does this account begin? It says Jesus went and found Philip. And really, that's each Christian's story. This was John's and Andrew's and Peter's story. It just wasn't as obvious. Jesus sought them out. They didn't seek out Jesus. And with Philip, it's like Jesus takes his fighter jet of grace and acquires a new target. And he locks that target on Philip and doesn't move. Jesus doesn't leave it to chance. He doesn't wait for Philip to find Jesus. He went out and found Philip. Jesus does not come to earth to make it possible for us to be saved. No, Jesus comes to save. Brother and sister, this means that Jesus tracked you down. And though it might not feel like it sometimes, that means he will not let you go. It's going to be a point that's repeated in the book of John. It'll come up later in John chapter 10 when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. I, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also. I have to go to them and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus found Philip. That's a unique part of this story. We just see it so obvious here. But then Philip goes on to tell his friend Nathaniel about Jesus. So again, how do you know you're convinced of Jesus? You want to tell others about him. Andrew does this, now Philip does this. And he finds Nathaniel. In other places, Nathaniel's called Bartholomew. And Philip fleshes out Jesus' identity more than Andrew did in the previous account. Philip calls Jesus the one of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. That's another little difference between the two accounts. Moses and the prophets refer to the two big sections of the Old Testament. And how does the Old Testament point to Jesus? Well, that is a whole sermon series in itself. But we can use the categories we mentioned earlier, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the ultimate and final prophet, the ultimate and final priest, the ultimate and final king. Those categories established in the Old Testament. But more than that, ever since the beginning, ever since the fall of man, people have waited for the Redeemer. Satan enticed Adam and Eve to rebel against God and curse was unleashed upon creation. But in Genesis 3.15, God promised that through an offspring of Eve, he would crush Satan and thereby reverse the curse of sin. People have waited for that offspring ever since. And Philip says, here he is. The one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. By the way, Philip's description here is one reason why we strive to make Jesus the hero of every sermon, not us. We want Jesus to be the hero of every sermon because he's the hero of the entire Bible. He's the center of it. It all points to him. So here, back to the story. Big Phil tells little Nate about Jesus. I don't know if Phil was big or Nate was small. But Nathaniel, when he hears, is skeptical. He hears Philip describe Jesus as being from Nazareth, and that does not sit well with Nathaniel. These disciples are real people. They have real doubt. They have real questions. And you might hear that Jesus from Nazareth and you say, hold on, I know enough Christmas trivia to know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And you're right, he was, but he grew up in Nazareth. 
And just reading here, you don't need Bible background knowledge. You don't need to know the history of the ancient Near East to pick up on the fact that people don't like Nazareth. It has a bad reputation. We might say that Nazareth is like the East Cleveland of Israel. But isn't it just like Jesus to step off his heavenly throne and not just come to earth, but come to a place like Nazareth and grow up there? Isn't it just like Jesus to show how great he is by using the lowly, by using the disregarded, and by using the underestimated? So Jesus was from Nazareth. And we saw in verse 38 how Jesus was instructive to us. He loves asking questions. We should be good at asking questions. Here in verse 46, Philip also helps us out. Philip helps us out in the way that he responds to his friend's skepticism. He tells Nathaniel words we've heard already. He tells him, Nathaniel, come and see. You see what he doesn't say to Nathaniel. He doesn't say to Nathaniel, you don't get it. You unbeliever. You have no idea what you're talking about. My money's on, that probably wouldn't have gotten Nathaniel to hear him out. Notice what Philip doesn't say to Nathaniel. He doesn't say, Nathaniel, let me tell you why you're wrong. These are ten reasons why I know Jesus is the Messiah. May have been closer to the mark, but Philip still might not have convinced his friend, Nathaniel. Philip knows. Philip knows that nothing that he can say will be better than Nathaniel going to see and hear Jesus for himself. See and hear Jesus for yourself. For us, we can't spend so much time rebuking people's unbelief. We can't spend so much time debating people that we fail to take them to Jesus and how he is described in the word. See and hear from Jesus themselves. We can't get lost in the weeds of subtopics before we deal with the main topic, Jesus. So the story, Nathaniel bites, just like Simon did. He, he hears out Jesus. He's, Nathaniel is willing to set aside his biases. He's willing to set aside his bad assumptions. He's willing, he's willing to deal honestly with the primary source. My friend, if you don't believe in Jesus, would you at least be like Nathaniel? And Nathaniel approaches Jesus, and again, Jesus' fighter, fighter jet of grace is revving up and acquires a new target. Jesus convinces Nathaniel of who he truly is. And he shows Nathaniel that he knows him in ways that only God would know him. The first way, Jesus knows something of Nathaniel's character and the way that Nathaniel operates. He says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel says, Well, how do you know that about me? And Jesus replies back, saying essentially, Nate, you don't get it. I know everything about you. I know what you were doing before Philip came and talked to you. Now, we're not told what Nathaniel did under the fig tree. A fig tree was often a place for prayer. But the focus is on that Jesus shouldn't have known this, but he did. And that was enough to convince Nathaniel. And boy, was Nathaniel ever convinced. Nathaniel went from the guy who said, everybody from Nazareth is a bum, to this guy from Nazareth is the son of God and the king of Israel. And that change happened in, I don't know, two minutes. And even Jesus recognized that Nathaniel made quite the dramatic turn. And so Jesus does his best Billy Mays impression. Do you remember that guy, Billy Mays, the name ring a bell? Uh, this is the guy who did the OxyClean commercials. Um, 
like any great infomercial, just when you think it's about to end, just when you think it can't get any better than this, they say, but wait, there's more. <laughs> Jesus tells Nathaniel in verse 50, essentially, but wait, there's more. You will see greater things than these, Nathaniel. Truly, truly, I say to you, which means you can take this to the bank. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. There's a lot we could unpack here just to summarize it. This talk of angels ascending and descending would have sounded familiar, especially to, to Jewish men who are steeped in the Old Testament. It would have reminded them of Jacob's ladder that we read about earlier from Genesis 28. At that point in the book of Genesis, Jacob is on the run from his brother Esau. Uh, Jacob was a con artist. Jacob conned his brother Esau out of his birthright. And so in Genesis 28, Jacob has a dream of this ladder that angels go up and down on. And God speaks to Jacob and says, even though you're a con artist, I'm going to still give you the blessing of your grandfather, Abraham. Jacob wakes up and calls the place the house of God and the gate to heaven. So what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is essentially saying, I am the true ladder of Jacob's dream. I am the way that heaven has come down so that I can bring others up to it. So when will the disciples know that verse 51 is really true about Jesus? Yeah, they're more and more convinced along the way as Jesus performs miracles, as Jesus gives authoritative teaching, as Jesus casts out demons. There is no greater sign that Jesus is the gate to heaven than his cross and his empty tomb. That Jesus bore our sins that prevented us from God's presence. He bore, his, he bore his, our sins in himself, in his body, on the tree. So here we are at the end of John 1. We have four more people convinced of who Jesus really is. And look at all the titles we've had, even just in this section. That Jesus is the Lamb of God. That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the one of whom Moses and the prophets write. That Jesus is the King of Israel. That Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the way to heaven. And what we've said this whole time is that Andrew and John's and Peter's and Philip and Nathaniel's stories can be our story as well. That we can hear about Jesus, come and see Jesus for ourselves, follow Jesus, bring others to Jesus, and continue to see even greater and greater things of Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for seeking us out and finding us. That is our story, Lord. If there's someone here who knows the restlessness that there is without you, and we know, God, how much we just fight to be self-sufficient. But Lord, would you seek more out and give them rest? Holy Spirit, please, please move in us still that we, wouldn't, that we wouldn't underestimate Jesus, that we wouldn't just take one bite, but that we would taste and see that the Lord is good and be compelled to stay near and to be as close as we can. We stray so often, Lord. Please, as our good shepherd, continue to seek us out and pull us back. For your name's sake and for our good, we pray. Amen.